We're going to look at Colossians, and we're talking about um, how do you grow people to maturity in Christ, and I assume for most of you, uh, I hope for all of you, this is nothing new, but um, like all good things, you can forget them, and you can lose focus, and I think probably for the first um, for the first uh, year of our church plan, I think I lost a little bit of focus on this. And then I remember middle way through last year, I was sitting down with Richard Koken, and he was just drilling me uh, over a cup of tea at the YouthWorks um, Training Centre down in, um, in the Shire. Just drilling me on the word is powerful to save people and to grow people. And it restored my confidence in the word to grow people. So we're going to look at that in just a second. I might pray, and then um, I've got a little bit of a story to tell before we start. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that uh, you would remind us and refresh us for our ministry, but we pray that you'd remind us, that you'd give us greater confidence in what it is we're doing, in why it is the, uh, the most important thing to be doing in the world, bringing the Word of God to bear on people's lives. We thank you that there is so much power packed into the seed, which is the Word of God, that in it, lives, uh, lives can be changed. We pray, Father, that this day, uh, that, the, uh, that the outcomes of this day wouldn't just affect our week and our church this week, but we pray for an impact around the world and throughout history because of what we discussed today. Keep us from wasting our time today. We pray for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, um, my, I've got two daughters and a son on the way, and my eldest daughter is almost six, and I love reading fairy tales to them. And uh, one fairy tale uh, is uh, Beauty and the Beast. And let me just read to you a couple of lines uh, from the climax of this fairy tale. It goes like this. Now Beauty feared that she'd caused his death. She ran throughout the palace, sobbing loudly and searching everywhere. She found the poor beast, stretched out unconscious. She thought he was dead. Without concern for his horrifying look, she threw herself on his body and felt his heart beating. No, my dear beast, you shall not die, said Beauty. You will live to become my husband. Alas, I thought I'd only felt friendship for you, but the torment I am feeling makes me realize that I cannot live without you. Beauty had scarcely uttered those words when the castle radiated with light. Fireworks and music announced a feast. These attractions didn't hold her attention, though. She returned her gaze to her dear beast, whose dangerous condition made her tremble. How great was her surprise when she discovered that the beast had disappeared, and at her feet was a prince more handsome than Eros himself. Now, I think this is one of the deepest and, uh, and one of the most wonderful of all mythic truths, the transformation rite. And you see it in all the fairy tales. You see it, the phoenix rises from the ashes, Cinderella, she rises from the cinders to become a queen, the ugly duckling becomes a beautiful swan, Pinocchio becomes a real boy. There's this mythic element in all the fairy tales that has regard to the transformation and I, you know, it's, it's interesting, why are we so enchanted by tales of 
change, of transformation. And I wonder whether it's because it's what we all feel we all need and what our world needs quite, quite um, profoundly. And you see it, uh, you see it echoed throughout the Gospels, don't you? You see Zacchaeus, the trickster, becomes Zacchaeus, the honorist and generous man. You see Mary the whore becomes Mary the faithful. You see Paul the self-righteous murderer becomes Paul the humble apostle. You know, the truth is that um, transformation and change, it's really, it's at the heart of, uh, of the Christian gospel and it's kind of what thrills us most if you're in ministry, which um, we all are. So I've got, I was just thinking about this last night, we've got four people that I desperately long to see them transformed at the moment. We've just had this tall, blonde girl, uh, very intelligent, come along to our church for whom men just control her life. And she's come to church, uh, no Christian background, but... um, She's come to church because she was dating this Christian guy and he broke her heart and in the end, for some reason, she came along. And I long desperately that she'd be transformed from having the grip of men over her life to having Jesus uh, have his grip on her life. I kind of feel for the guy I'm mentoring at the moment who's addicted to porn and he is so desperate to get released from it. He's so prayerful, he's so self-disciplined and yet still... It takes a hold of his life. I want Rachel, uh, one of my oldest Christian friends, uh, who's in our community group, who's in musical theatre. I want her to go into musical theatre and to experience success in her career without succumbing to the bitchiness and the me-centeredness of that kind of industry. And I want Kelvin to grow up as a man who doesn't have a father. He died when he was 12. And he's kind of lost as to what does mature manhood look like and what is mature manhood with a woman by his side whom he's dating. What does that look like? What does it look like to be intentional and gentle and pure in relating to her? And that's my deepest kind of... And I assume that's your kind of goal for your people as well, that you'd see lives transformed by the gospel into people who have a deep and profound faith in the Lord Jesus, a longing and a hope for where he's taking our world and a great love for the people around him. And that's what Colossians really is about. Paul wrote this little letter to a group of people. If you've got your Bible there, chapter 1, verse 3, he's heard about these people. He says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we've heard. He hasn't even been there, but he's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love they have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from hope stored up for you in heaven. If you flip over to chapter 4, you read about Epaphras, chapter 4, verse 12, who, it seems, planted this little church in Colossae. Epaphras, verse 12, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling. Always wrestling. Why is he wrestling? Well, he's wrestling in prayer for you that you would stand firm in all the will of God, mature. There's that word, and fully assured. That's his goal for this church, that they'd be transformed by the gospel and grow to maturity in Christ Jesus. And you have Epaphras wrestling. Obviously, there's a problem, and there is a problem, and you read about that problem in chapter 2, 
and you start to see it in verse 6 and then verse 8. He says, stick with Jesus. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. You have these people moving into the church in Colossae who are trying to take them captive, trying to uh, teaching stuff like you don't really need Jesus or if you've got Jesus, you need something else to experience life transformation. And here they all are. And Paul talks about the deceptive and hollow philosophy that they were preaching. And so Paul writes this letter to a group of Christians who are growing. They've been... He's heard about their growth and he said, yeah, the growth that's happened in you, make sure it continues. And he says a number of things. Look at verse 21 and this is where I'll pick it up of chapter 1. He says, let me tell you about what has happened in your life. He says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, notice A change has taken place. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Something's changed in their life. They've gone from being alienated from God and enemies. They had no use for God. And I wonder whether you remember uh, your former life, right? How you had no use for God. He was kind of like a footnote to your life. If he was even in your life, you'd kind of cut him from your thinking. And as a result, you'd become hostile towards God. You avoided him. You kept him out because you didn't want him controlling your life. And as a result, you became enemies of God, alienated from God and enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But, 22, verse 22, but now something's happened. Cinderella has risen from the cinders, right? The beast has become a beauty, but now he has reconciled you to God. He's done it, and you can be sure of that, and you can start enjoying what he's done for you, which he's done by his death. Verse 22, he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, to present you holy in his sight without blemish. He's done it by suffering and dying. He's set aside our old alienation. This should thrill your heart as you remember what he's done. He set aside your old alienation, set aside your brokenness, your sin, and he said that he can come to us, not just as friends, but as his family, restored, forgiven, set free and reconciled. So something's changed positionally, or adopted into his family. And then soon, behaviorally, we used to be hostile to God in our minds because of our evil behavior, but now change has occurred. You're no longer under his judgment. You've been reconciled to God positionally, and your life will soon to bear evidence of that change having come into your life. C.S. Lewis, I think he said, um, the Bible isn't about man's search for God. It's about God's search for man. And that's what you see here, right? You see us alienated and God coming as the hound of heaven, pursuing us, reconciling us, saving us, and coming near to us. And as a result, God is in the, cha- is in the business of changing Life, a change in status, and slowly but but surely, a change in thinking, feeling, 
behaving. And so change is possible. And that should thrill you. Now, how do you get this change? Who does this change come to? If we want to affect change in these four friends of mine at my church, what is it that God's given us to kind of bring change into their life? And I think you see kind of three things here. And I reckon Paul's got in mind Mark chapter 4 and the parable of the soils. So I've got three things here. Plant the right seed, put yourself under a hard-working farmer, or be the hard-working farmer. Thirdly, pull out the weeds. Right? I think he's got in mind kind of the, uh, the image Jesus gives in Mark 4, so I'm going to use that image and see if it fits with what Paul's talking about here. And so look at verse 25. Uh, this is the first thing you do, right? You plant the right seed. This is, this is rocket science, right? <laughs> Hopefully you know this. Look at verse 25. He says, um, but, uh, uh, verse, uh, verse 25, I've become the gospel servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches. The glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So notice verse 28, that's his goal, that he'd present everyone fully mature in Christ. Now how does he do that? Well, he tells you, verse 25, he does it by presenting to you the word of God in all its fullness. Rocket science, right? You know this, but you've got to be reminded of it. We need to be reminded of it. This is how changed lives begin, where changed lives grow. You get the seed which is the word of God and you plant it in the soil of individuals souls the seed is something God plants in it and this is what Peter's talking about do you remember in chapter 1 verse 23 where he says you have been born again you've been transformed a beauty in the beast moment occurred you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So lives are changed when the gospel, the word of God, is planted in the soil of people's souls. You were born again. Your life was changed. You were given new life through the living and enduring word of God. So I assume we all want life-changing ministries, right? And this is the answer. The answer is become a really good gardener. Right, get the seed and go out scattering it on the soil of people's lives. This is the secret to change. It's having the word of God scattered, drenched. I think Dan, he, he talks about flooding the Illawarra with disciples through the proclamation of the gospel. I love that metaphor of flooding. I think Jordan uses the metaphor of tidal wave. Is that right? I like that. Right? That's good. Uh, and this... Uh, and it isn't just the power by which our lives are, are converted. It's the power by which Christians grow to maturity. So look at verse 27, right? 
to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is this seed scattered? What is this word concerning? It is concerning the mystery, the mystery which the glorious riches of which is this secret which has been kept hidden but now has been made known, which is Christ in you, Christ coming to live within you. You are with him and God is with you. You are now reconciled and this is what you become an agent of. You become an agent of reconciliation. So that's the first thing, right? You plant, you got to plant the right seed. And so my question is, are you planting the word of God, the gospel, into people's lives? Don't, don't give up on this being the power of God for salvation. Secondly, um, you need a hard-working farmer. Once you've got the seed planted in the soil of people's souls, you know, Paul's, verse 23, he's been talking about the gospel. He's saying it's got to get into people's lives. And he says, actually, you need a hard-working farmer. This just doesn't happen through some through the Holy Spirit just going out with no human agency. Humans must be involved. So look at verse 24. This is what he says. He says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking. That's surprising, isn't it? What is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. And then skip down to 29. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard, here how he's discussing his ministry here, how hard I am contending for you and for all those that are Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. You hear the links between what he says in 1 Timothy when he says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier for Christ. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share in the crops, right? Most people in Sydney, you ask them, I don't know, you ask them what, you know, to describe your job, what will they say? I think most people probably think I work three hours on Sunday and I get the whole rest of the week off, right? I don't know whether you have that conversation with people. You know, what exactly do you do? And, uh, but the truth is, notice how Paul describes what you do. Uh, he, to Timothy, he says, it's the work of a hard-working farmer. And all the language here is of that, or of a fighter. And listen, he says, I'm suffering for you. He says, I'm afflicted, I'm a servant, I'm strenuously contending. Being a pastor is as hard a job as it gets, Right? And sometimes I think I underestimate how hard it is. I'm like, no, everyone's got it hard. But here Paul is saying, no, the work of a farmer intending to the seed, which is the word of God, is the work of strenuously contending. All genuine ministers of the gospel work hard and they'll suffer for it, willingly, even joyfully. Verse 24, Paul says, now I rejoice in what I suffer. Why would you rejoice in what you suffer? He isn't a masochist because he says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. So there's a purpose to what he is suffering. He takes joy in the hard work because he knows the benefit his work brings 
to others, which is change lives. You know, Doctors Without Borders, they risk their lives in war-torn countries to save lives, and the gospel minister knows even more the reality that if it comes to it, they will risk their life, bringing real eternal life to people who are alienated from God. I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, what does he mean uh, that something is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Turn to the person next to you. What What do you think he's talking about? All right, what do you reckon? <laughs> I actually don't. I'm I'm not that confident. I've got an, I've got an idea, but I'm not sure if it's right. I don't think it has to do with the time of Christ's suffering. It's not bashing in terms of providing salvation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not that. That's the easy part. Yeah, okay, we know what it's not. How do you know it's not what, it, what, it, what it's... Uh, rest work is sufficient. Yeah. Okay, so the rest of the Bible tells us what it isn't, but what is it then? Ongoing fulfillment of what Christ, what Christ has done on the cross, as, as Paul suffers and takes the message to more people, they are reaching, they're participating in, what Christ did is for them. So his suffering is a, is a fulfillment part of life rather than a... Mm. Substitutionary life. So 123 is talking about, so it's the gospel that you heard and this is the gospel that proclaims the preacher of heaven which, for, which I call it, become a servant. It's the act of being a servant of that gospel. Mm. Um, so the, the message doesn't proclaim itself to the ends of the earth. But it's through Christ's servant that that happens. So that's the suffering that goes with being a servant of the gospel. Mm. Yeah. Whatever the case though, the um, the implication is pretty clear clear, right? And this is what I've forgotten your name. Yeah. Ken brought up that's Someone must pray, pay a cost in order to bring the gospel to the nations. Um, and uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus speaks about that. that he, he said, some of us will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all the nations because of me. He says, when he's actually speaking about the parable of the soils, he says, of the soil that doesn't last, he says, when trouble or persecution, that word in Greek is the same word here for afflictions, when afflictions come because of the word, they quickly fall away. The word persecute, it's the same word. So if you're a Christian, the day will come where if you're loyal to Jesus, you'll experience some kind of suffering and affliction for staying, safe, uh, for staying faithful to him, they may mock you, laugh at you, dismiss you, unfriend you. If you're in another country, they may even kill you and arrest you. 
but someone must pay. I think that's the implication here. Someone's got to pay. Christ has paid for the salvation, but someone must pay in bringing the gospel to others. And so I wonder whether you can recall who was the first person to bring you the gospel and have you thought about what did they pay? What sacrifices, what suffering did they endure? What inconveniences did they experience? What heartache, what tears, what prayers did they give up in order for you to be a Christian? And as you think about bringing the life-changing word of God to others, scattering the seed, this will affect you and so as you pick up the word it will cost you but you'll find it's worth it you'll say with Paul now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you there's a clear benefit to them you know I I think sometimes I forget this I forget that God is with me and working through me even when I feel I'm at the limits of my abilities which is often right so many times I just got no idea what I'm doing half the time in planning a church. No idea. I find myself at the limits of my abilities and I can't possibly achieve what God has called me to do. And at this moment, I I find reflecting on this helpful. Richard Borkham wrote an article many, many years ago in Themelios called Weakness, Paul's and Our Own. And he applies this uh, really uh, strikingly. And uh, let me quote to you what he says. He says, We shouldn't be taken in by the ideal of a charismatic superman for whom the Holy Spirit is a constant source of superhuman strength. Nor should we fall for the ideal of the modern secular superman, the man who organises his whole life with the object of maintaining his own physical and mental well-being, who keeps up the impression of strength because he keeps his life well within the limits of what he can easily cope with. Such a man is never weak because he is never affected, concerned or involved or committed beyond a cautiously safe limit. That was neither Jesus' ideal of life nor Paul's. To be controlled by the love of Christ means inevitably to reach the limits of one's abilities and experience weakness. That's where I'm at most weeks, all right? And I've got to be reminded, this is a good place to be in because it means I am concerned, involved, and darn right committed. I'm a hard-working farmer, and it's going to tax me. I am going to experience weakness. I'm not going to be a superhuman, but I'm going to rejoice that God is strong and his power is made perfect in weakness. And that is when hard-working farmers suffer. Right? And that's the second thing. Third thing is hard-working farmers, they pull out weeds. And as soon as he is talking about this, he starts talking about weeds, verse 4. He says, I tell you this, this is the work of my ministry to you, scattering the seed as a hard-working farmer, suffering for I tell you this so that no one would deceive you by sound-finding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm you in the faith you are. The reality was people were coming into this church trying to deceive them by sound-finding arguments. They came in and they said, Jesus isn't enough. You need to add something for him, or you should take something away. And so verse 8 
He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, what depends on human tradition or the elemental spiritual forces at work in the world, rather than on Christ. He said, I'm a preacher of Christ. Make sure no one distracts you from that. It's hollow and deceptive. It'll make your life empty. It'll make you lose your salvation if you're deceived by that. It'll kidnap you from placing your trust and confidence in Christ. And it'll choke the seed in your life. And so the hardworking farmer must pull up the weeds. They must start spraying the roundup. Alright? And then if you do all these three things, finally you see you'll bear good fruit. Verse 2. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Uh, Here's the fruit, right? You see Paul's goal for the church, the fruit of spiritual growth in your life and in your church, a, a unity of love, an encouraged heart, complete understanding of the mystery of God, a disciplined life, and a faith in Jesus Christ. I don't have time to go into those things, but there's real spiritual fruit. I like what Rick Warren says about this. He says, we must not focus on church growth. Rather, we need to focus on church health. He says, living things, if you remove the barriers to health, they will grow. And so he says, we we really should be focusing on church health rather than church growth. If you provide a conducive atmosphere for something that is alive to grow, it will grow. It will grow and produce the fruit of an encouraged heart, unity of love, complete understanding of the mystery of God, a disciplined life and faith in Christ Jesus. I've got a bonsai plant that my mum gave me at the start of the year and it's pretty much dead now. I don't know why it's died, right? But there is no mystery to why uh, people's spiritual lives are either dying or living. The question is, is the word being scattered on them? Is there a hard-working farmer working hard, strenuously contending for them in feeding them? Is this hard-working farmer plucking out the weeds of false teaching and those who would take us deceptive by hollow and deceptive philosophy? And if that's happening... There is great cause to believe that this thing which is alive, God has brought it from death to life. There is great reason to believe that they will grow. Let me conclude with um, my favourite illustration of this. Um, Tim Kellett speaks about an old illustration by G. Campbell Morgan. G. Campbell Morgan, he visited Italy and he came across this graveyard and particularly this grave with this large marble slab over the top of the graveyard. And probably 500, 600 years ago, an acorn was buried underneath the large marble slab. And out of that acorn came a shoot, and out of that shoot came a tree, and out of that acorn became a tree so big that it split the marble in two, split the marble slab in half. Common sense would tell you, a little acorn, slab of marble. Not a chance, right? The marble is the stronger one in the illustration. And yet Jesus is saying here, no little seed, as tiny as a mustard seed, 
little acorn has such life in it, the gospel has such life-changing power in it, that it has the power to split a marble slab or split people's lives in half so that they experience a transformation better than what the beast experienced. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you've brought us from death to life. We've experienced your transforming grace in our lives. And Father, what thrills us most is to see that take place in people's lives. We ask, Father, that you'd help us get really good at farming, that really good at scattering the seed on the soil of people's souls. Father, working hard. Father, when it is bloody hard, We pray that we'd remember that's how it was always going to be and that someone has to pay the price of bringing the gospel to the nations. Uh, Help us not to believe the lie that we can be a a superhuman without weakness. Uh, Help us to realize that when we're weak, you're strong. And when we're at the limit of our abilities, it paves a way for you to move in and to get the glory for yourself. We pray, Father, that we'd be attentive to those weeds that are growing up in our own lives and the lives of those we shepherd and look after. And, Father, give us boldness to spray the roundup on those lives. And, Father, our goal is that in Sydney and around Australia there'd be this harvest of righteousness, that there'd be courageous faith, that there'd be self-disciplined lives. We pray this so that Jesus would get much glory and we'd get much joy in seeing him at work. Amen.